the red pill or the blue pill? You guys know what I'm talking about? The red pill or the blue pill. You don't need to know the movie The Matrix, so you do need to know this, that in that climactic scene early in the Matrix movie, the main character, Neo, played by Keanu Reeves, is offered an essential and critical choice. See, it's explained to Neo, Keanu Reeves, that there is more to reality than meets his eyes. He's always known that there's more to reality. He's always had a sense that there's more going on here than he realized, but it's just kind of felt like... Uh, what's the language? Um, clicks or whatever in the matrix, right? Uh, flickers in the matrix. He's always had a sense of this more to meet his eyes, but finally he has to encounter it for himself and make a decision on, as to whether or not he is going to go back to artificial reality, kind of blissful ignorance in a sense, or whether or not he's going to confront reality as it truly is. Reality that is more than he can merely see with his physical eyes. You see, Neo has to make a choice. I want to suggest to you this morning from the pages of the Bible that similarly you and I have to make a choice to see reality not merely with our physical eyes but spiritually, to have eyes to comprehend what is going on in the world around us in a way that I think often our 21st century eyes blind us to. See, the passage we're going to look at from the book of Revelation together, Chapter 12, particularly, is going to reveal to us that there is much more to reality than what we see with our eyes. Our world is deeply and fundamentally shaped by spiritual forces. Do you know that? I've got a a quote for you on our handout, which is on page 29 of your packet. Nancy Guthrie, in her excellent book, I hope this will be at the book table, it's called Blessed. It's a sort of a a short Bible study on the book of Revelation. If you're into Revelation, like I am, pick it up, check it out. But she has this great quote on the the section of Scripture we're going to be looking at today. It's the top of your handout. It says this, In Revelation 12 through 14, the curtain is drawn back for us so that we can see the unseen reality of a war that took place in heaven and a war taking place right now in this world and in your life, whether you realize it or not. You catch that? Nancy Guthrie is saying, I think, what this text is going to show us, which is we need to get our eyes fixed on a reality, particularly on a war that is going on all around the world that we're often unaware of. We need to tear back the curtain of reality as we see it with our eyes to see reality, even to th- maybe even to see reality even this moment in light of a heavenly perspective, to see earth from heaven's perspective. That is what the book of Revelation in general is trying to do, and particularly this text in Revelation chapter 12. So you and I have an opportunity to choose, I don't know if it was the red pill or the blue pill, whichever one was the right one, but to choose the right one and to see reality as it truly is. And and the reality is, as we actually see the, the world in light of spiritual forces, it is dark. It is hard. It is in some ways scary, but it is extremely hopeful about what God is doing in the world. My simple, low goal this morning is for for us to have our view of reality changed as we look at the book of Revelation chapter 12. Would you join me as we read Revelation 12 together? It is printed for you in your packet in page 28, but I'm going to read just straight from the Bible. Revelation chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. 
She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head, heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to heaven, sorry, caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens. And you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river with the dragon uh, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Let's pray. God, as we come this morning to consider spiritual things, to see earth from heaven's perspective, we know that we do not possess the power in and of ourselves with merely our mental capacity or merely the the articulation of of my ideas to, to understand these things. God, we don't possess this ability in and of ourselves, but thanks be to God that you have given us the Spirit of God to communicate to us the Word of God that we might delight in God our Father. So God, I pray that the Spirit would be amongst us this morning. Would it uh, illuminate my voice and clarify my words and make these truths clear to us, even these images that can be complicated to understand, help them to be simple to us. And God, I pray for those under the sound of my voice that they would not merely hear uh, interesting ideas about the Bible, but that the Bible would come more alive to them and alive in their experience that they would see the great cosmic battle that has been won, and that they would be engaged in the great cosmic war that is ongoing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can see three things we're going to walk through in this text printed for you on your handout. First, we're going to see the epic arrival of the king. Look with me first at how this text opens. 
In verse 1, we see a great sign appeared in heaven. A sign is a symbolic picture meant to show us something, meant to uncover something. And the first sign we see is this woman. Look at what we learn about this woman. She is clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her a crown of 12 on her head a crown of 12 stars she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth i just want to point this out i think this will be helpful for us as we walk through all these images what's going on here in the book of revelation is images are being used to dis, to unpack real realities in this world so there's an image here we need to understand what the author john was trying to communicate with this image of the woman and we'll be helped particularly as we look at what these images meant in the Bible. So first we see that this woman had a crown of 12 stars. What does that mean? Well, look at what I put for you in your handout. In the book of Genesis, one of the earliest books in the Bible, Joseph has a dream. And in that dream, Joseph uh, refers to the fathers of Israel as 12 stars. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. So Joseph is saying in Genesis 37 that he and his brothers who would form the nation of Israel, they're the stars. So the stars come to represent, and they really will frequently throughout the the scriptures, the people of God, God's covenant people, Israel in the Old Testament and later the church in the New. So what it's saying here is that when she has a crown of 12 stars, we're saying here this woman represents faithful Israel. That's who this woman is. She's faithful Israel. And it's pictured for us, especially personified maybe in the person of Mary. We see that she is in pains of childbirth. And from her, verse 5, will come a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. You see, this woman is going through the labors of pregnancy to give birth. She's suffering in the hopes that one day from her will come a child who will rule who will put the world back together, who will defeat evil and reign victoriously. See, it's interesting, because in these few verses, we have a a heavenly picture of Jesus' epic arrival on earth. In fact, that's why we notice the similarities between this woman and Mary, right? A woman who would give birth to a son who would rule the world. And Mary herself represents faithful Israel. So, so far we have a nice story of a woman giving birth to a child on which she set great hopes, but the story turns darkly very quickly. Did you notice that? We have this nice story until it turns, in verse 3, in comes the great red dragon. Look what the text tells us about this dragon. He has seven heads. That number seven is used in the book of Revelation to signal completeness. So this is the complete picture of evil here. He has ten horns. That number particularly is meant to show immense power. And we see this immense power of the dragon because in verse 4, he knocks down a third of the stars of heaven with his tail. Verse 9 calls this dragon the ancient serpent, which reminds us that this dragon is the same serpent who from the very beginning of the Bible deceived Adam and Eve and led the whole world into destruction and death. Verse 9 calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. You see, what we get here in the dragon is the great picture of evil in the universe. The great villain of all villains who every, every superhero movie, 
kind of gives us a tiny little taste of is pictured here. Satan is the great villain of all villains. He is the fullness of wickedness, of might, of dread, and of evil. He is the original liar who plunged our world into falsehood and lies. And look at what this evil dragon is doing, this picture of evil. Second half of verse 4. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, that when she bore her child, he might devour it. You see, I've watched my wife give birth to several children over the last few years, and, you know, it's an uh, exciting scene. <laughs> it's an exciting scene. Uh, one of the things you don't want is your worst enemy to show up when your wife's giving birth. That's just been my experience. I think that's probably true for most people, right? You don't want that. That's what's happening here in the text. The great enemy of God and of God's people shows up at the absolute worst time. And we know from the Bible that this is the, this is the great climactic story, really, of the Bible. You can say it that way. In fact, in the very first pages of the Bible, like the second page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, there begins a great war between God and his people. Do you know that? I've printed for you particularly how that's illuminated in just one verse in Genesis chapter 3. This is what God says to Satan in Genesis chapter 3. He says, I will put enmity, that is warfare or hatred, between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her. Catch this. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So what God is saying here, very simply, it's an Old Testament reference, but it's got a simple point. God says this, from now on, for the rest of human history, there's going to be war between Satan on the one side and his followers, and between God and his followers, the offspring of Eve, the woman. They are going to always be fighting one another. And notice what's going to happen in the warfare. First, Satan is going to bruise you're his heel. This means Satan is actually going to damage and hurt God's people. And yet, there will come a woman, an offspring from the woman who will, catch this, bruise your head. There's coming one day from God's people an heir who will come, who will rule, and who will crush Satan's head, crush the head of the serpent, killing it and destroying it forever. Okay, why is he going all the way back to Genesis 3? You're probably wondering. Here's the simple reason, because it helps us understand Genesis 12. You see, Satan knows what's coming. He knows that from the woman is going to come a son who is going to kill him. And so he is very concerned to see that son killed before he can ever come forth. That's why his goal is to devour him. So he sets himself up to devour and destroy Jesus. All right, you're probably wondering this. When does that happen in the Bible? Does anyone know? This actually happens in the Bible. On the cross? Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a good spot where it does actually happen. There's another spot I was thinking of. Yeah. Right. When Jesus was born, do you remember this story? Jesus was born, and Satan, getting behind the political figures of his day, I, he's still doing that today, believe it or not, he gets behind the political figure of his day, Herod, who's the ruler, and he says, Herod, let's get rid of this Jesus person. He's just been born, so let's kill in the town Jesus was born all the two-year-old babies. Let's slaughter them. I printed a reference to it in your packet in Matthew chapter 2. So what's going on there, it's actually, in some ways, it, it resonates with what Dave was saying this morning. 
what you see in Matthew chapter 2, it feels like a political thing, right? It feels like, oh, this evil king is killing a bunch of babies because he, he's scared of another king. And, and there's some truth that there's some political stuff going on. But there's also what Revelation is trying to show us is in light of these political things, there's deeper spiritual things that are happening behind the scenes. See, behind what's going on with Herod is Satan himself, the great dragon who is trying to kill and destroy Jesus from the very beginning. But thanks be to God, God intervenes. Look at verse 5. Her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman flees to the wilderness. And this is exactly what happens. Jesus is not slaughtered by the political figure of the day, but he is saved from an angelic, by an angelic messenger who brings him and his family out. This is interesting. Just think with me for a moment about all that we've learned here. This is a very different way to tell the Christmas story, isn't it? This is not what I'm used to at Christmas. I've been going to church at Christmas for a long time, and this is not the kind of songs we sing. I don't know about you guys. One of the, the, the songs we sing, for me at least, growing up and going to church somewhat regularly on Christmas Eve is Silent Night. You guys ever sing that? Silent Night. I don't know why I'm singing now, but all is calm, all is bright. Right? Christmas is this peaceful time when little baby Jesus comes to a manger. Isn't he cute? And it's so sweet and nice. Revelation 12, I think, wants to show us that behind that reality, there's a much deeper, scarier thing going on. There is a war going on for the earth and for heaven between the forces of good, God and his son and savior, Jesus Christ, and Satan and the evil one. And that is what's happening at Christmas. This is a different picture of the Christmas story. It shows us that the cosmic war has begun. The opening shots have been fired. We've seen the epic arrival of the king, but I want to press on and show you the complete victory in heaven. Notice what happens here. The whole picture changes, kind of in, starting in verse 7. Satan immediately moves against heaven. Look at verse 7. A great war arose in heaven. See, what happens is Satan and his demonic allies go to battle against God and his angelic host. And heaven itself is engulfed in warfare and flames as Satan tries to seize the throne from God. Then Jesus comes. Verse 10. Love verse 10. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ has come. This shows us Christ's salvation, not just his cross, but his resurrection from heavenly perspective. Jesus comes armed with the authority and power of God, and he takes down sin and death and brings Satan himself down. Look at the text. Look at what it says, how many times it repeats the, the phrase, thrown down. Look at verse 8, thrown down. Verse 9, thrown down. Again in verse 9, thrown down. Verse 10, thrown down. Verse 13, thrown down. Jesus has thrown Satan out of heaven and has gloriously triumphed over him. The great victory in heaven has been won. Alleluia, praise Jesus. But notice specifically how Satan has been thrown down. This is interesting. Verse 10 again. The saints in heaven cry out triumphantly. Catch this. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. They're saying something specific about what Satan's defeat, his being thrown down, actually means. What it means is that the accuser has been thrown down. Satan is the accuser. Do you know that? 
In heaven, one of the things Satan did was accuse God's people because of their sin. That's what he did. He was kind of like a prosecuting eternity who took one look at God's people and one look at God's word and said, hey, hey God, do you notice that your word doesn't match up with how your people are living? Do you see that? He was the accuser, accusing God's people over and over again for their guilt and their shame and their sin. That's who he was. But notice, that accuser has been thrown out of the courtroom. Therefore, there is no more accuser who stands in the courts of heaven against the people of God. Instead, in the place of the accuser stands Jesus Christ, your advocate. The accuser who condemns you has been displaced by the advocate who intercedes for you. This is why Paul can say with confidence those wonderful words in Romans chapter 8. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? There is no one left to charge God's people because Jesus has thrown down the accuser. He has interceded by his blood and God has accepted his sacrifice. Satan has been thrown down. Christian, are you familiar with the voice of accusation? I'm not talking about the voice of conviction. That's a different voice. The voice of conviction is the one that calls you out for your sin in a legitimate way and says, hey, have you noticed this or have you noticed that? That's the voice of conviction that calls you to repentance and calls you back toward God. The voice of accusation is not like that, though. And I know many of you in this room know that voice, don't you? The voice that reminds you over and over again of things in your past. The voice that reminds you over and over again of sins that you have confessed and repented of and pled the blood of Christ over, and yet you still feel a lingering sense of failure and shame for. The voice that will no longer, that will never let you forget your failures, but plays them over and over again in your mind like a terrible movie. That voice that tells you to forget God, that tells you that God could never love you for what you have done. Christian, do you realize that that voice has no power? Do you realize that according to this verse, Satan's accusations no longer reach heavenly ears? Satan's accusations no longer reach heavenly ears. This is why Paul can extol in Romans chapter 8, he can say this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ, no heavenly accusation awaits you. And therefore, the text urges the readers of this passage and the original audience and us as well to rejoice. Therefore, rejoice, the text says. Rejoice. The heavenly victory has been won. You no longer stand accused. And you can say with confidence, there is therefore now no condemnation for me because of what Christ has done. Praise the Lord. But we do need to consider for a moment, I know a number of you are here, and I'm glad you're here at the conference this weekend, who would say that you're not Christian. So what does this text mean for you? What, well, I think you have to consider this, that if you don't know Jesus, then you don't know him as an advocate. You don't know him as someone who intercedes for you. In fact, if we read through the rest of the Bible, and especially the rest of Revelation, if you don't have Jesus as an intercessor for you, then one day you will have to know Jesus as your judge. So I plead with you to come to know Christ this morning, to come to have your accusations and your sin and your guilt forgiven at the foot of the cross, 
Jesus has died for you and gloriously triumphed. Come to know Jesus Christ and trust in his great victory. We've seen the war in heaven between Satan and his allies and how they've been gloriously thrown down. And we've seen the epic arrival of the king. And I want to spend the last sort of focus of our time on the ongoing battle for earth. It should be noted here that as we've walked through the text so far, we've seen verses that particularly have uh, all been in the past tense. See, all that we've talked about so far has already been accomplished in Christ. But now this last section that we're going to look at is all in the present tense. It's because the battle for earth is ongoing, and it talks about how you and I fit into it. I want you to notice this, that as the story continues, the theater of battle changes. It moves from heaven down to earth. And I want to consider three elements of the battle here. The enemy, the shelter, and the weapons. First, look what the text says about the enemy. Although Jesus is victorious and God is on the throne, there is a sense in which Satan remains on earth and has some authority. This is why Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Peter calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. There's a sense in which the New Testament authors are saying that this, rule, this world is dominated by the force of evil and darkness. Yes, God is at work in it. Yes, God is in authority over it, as Dave unpacked for us this morning. But there is a real sense in which the ruler of this world is the evil one. Returning to Revelation 12, then, notice the contrast between reality in heaven and reality on earth. It's striking. In verse 12, Heaven is bursting forth with glorious praise. But notice, also in verse 12, what the people on earth have. It says they have great sorrow because Satan has great wrath, knowing that his time is short. Although Satan was thrown down from heaven, he has not yet been finally destroyed. In fact, Satan is even angrier because he knows that ultimately he will one day finally and totally be destroyed. Verse 13 says this, And when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. So catch what's going on here. Satan is defeated by Christ. He can't stand against Christ anymore, but he turns his attention to go against someone else. And who does he go after? The woman and her offspring. The church, the people of God. That is particularly who Satan is most interested in undermining and destroying. The church is Satan's foremost enemy. Have you ever wondered this? What is Satan up to? I don't know. Maybe you guys don't think like me, but sometimes I have thoughts like this. What is Satan doing in the world? What is he particularly focused on? He's not omnipresent or omnipowerful in the same way God is, but he he must have some kind of special focus. Well, the text seems to indicate here that Satan is not like some kind of cosmic Godzilla kind of wandering around like, ah, that's not Satan. I don't know what he is if he's not Godzilla, but he's much more with a, with a plan and with a focus to go after the people of God. That is his particular priority. Satan is at war with the church of Christ. And if you are a Christian, he is at war with you. Two points of application here. First, we need to understand our enemy. And second, we need to understand our suffering. We live in a world dominated by satanic spiritual influences. Satan and his allies have often blinded us to this reality. You see, it's tempting for Christians even to think of our enemies in the same way the rest of the world does, isn't it? 
It's tempting to think our enemies are perhaps people on the other side of the political aisle from us, or people who look different from us, or people who disagree with us. You see, our enemy primarily, if you are a Christian, is not a political party, but it is the evil one, Satan. Do you know that? And he has agents all over the world in every political party. Our great enemy is not some foreign power. It's not a political party. Our great enemy is not growing secularism. It's not even disease. But it's a far greater enemy who is, on, who is loose all over the world, who masks his influence in a variety of different ways to distract us from what's really going on. Satan, Satan is ravaging the world to great effectiveness. And Christians need to be more aware, myself included, that that is our great enemy. Secondly, we need to see something about Christian suffering here. I think this is critical. The primary reason for Christian suffering is not because Christians have done something wrong. It's not even primarily because the culture is becoming less and less Christian or whatever. The primary reason that Christians face real suffering for their faith is this, that Satan is after the church. That's who he's after. But in spite of the church's persecution from the evil one, there is real hope. Look back at verse 12, second half. It says this, Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Oh, that's a great verse. Satan's time is short. That is such good news. I put a quote for you on your handout that kind of unpacks that a little bit more. It says this on the bottom of your handout. The troubles of the persecuted saints, of persecuted Christians, occur not because Satan is too powerful for them, but because he has been decisively overthrown. The devil does all, he, all the damage he can, but he cannot prevail in any ultimate way. You see, biblically, the persecution of Christians is not a sign of Satan's victory in the world, but rather it's a sign of his decisive defeat. Because he's been defeated in heaven, now he goes to war really angrily, but for a very short time. Like a cornered animal on his last legs, Satan is lashing out, doing all the damage he can before he's ultimately defeated and destroyed. So this offers, I think, a great encouragement to Christians, particularly in this. This means that all Christian suffering is temporary. All Christian suffering is temporary. Satan's time is short. It won't last very long in the span of eternity. The battle will be hard. It will be difficult. And the enemy will assail you. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And one day, you will know his victory face to face. That's the enemy. Let's look for a moment at the shelter. Verse 6 and verse 13 are almost exact repetitions of one another. You see, the dragon is trying to capture the woman when God whisks her away to safety in the desert, where she is cared for by God for a period of time. And this similar event is repeated in verse 15 and 16. Follow along as I read it from Revelation 12, verse 15 and 16. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a, with a flood. But the earth came to help to the help of the woman. And the earth poured its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. See, there's a lot going on here, but it's actually fairly a simple text if we understand the characters. Right? This is a picture of what Satan is doing to the church today. It even reminds us of the Old Testament when, in the Old Testament, God tried to destroy the people of God 
with water. Remember in Exodus, right? When they stood on the brink of the sea and they were almost destroyed by the Egyptians. But God intervenes here as he did then and swallows the river. Notice too here that not only does God protect them, but notice that the church is also in the desert. I don't know about you, it's not where I'd like to be. The desert. That's where the church is. I'd prefer to be in the promised land if there are choices to be had. Unfortunately, there are not. The church is in the desert. It is the place of testing and not the place of resting. It has not yet experienced the full victory of heaven. The church is an embattled people who live in the wilderness. This is a picture of the condition of the church today. The faithful community of God, the church, is the primary object of Satan's attack. It is a people on the run, in one sense, from the evil one. However, God has his gracious hands of protection all over it. It will suffer, it will struggle, it will be beaten down and discouraged. It will feel overwhelmed, and at times it might even feel like the evil one is winning. But God, all the way along, is safeguarding and protecting it. The church of Jesus Christ will not fail. Even now, God is protecting you from the schemes of the evil one who seeks to kill and destroy you. This means that the church of Jesus Christ will never be destroyed. It cannot be beaten, but God will always sovereignly protect it. No matter what happens to our culture, no matter what happens in our world, no matter what struggles or difficulties you face. That's the shelter. I want to spend a chunk of time here on talking about the weapons. Notice the weapons that the people of God take up in their war against Satan. Before we even say that, look at this. Verse 11 is a staggering verse. They have conquered him. Wow. There is a way that the church, by God's power, conquers Satan. Man, do you want to be a part of seeing the evil one defeated? I do. This text is showing us how we might do that. It's just showing us simply that there are three weapons that the people of God use to be a part of defeating the great enemy of God. They're simple. Witnessing to Jesus, obeying Jesus, and sacrificing all for Jesus. Look with me first back at verse 11. Notice the church will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The church conquers by the sacrificial cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and by their testimony about that blood. The church advances today by witnesses to Jesus' sacrificial death, by people who lift their voice and declare of what Christ has done. Man, do you want to see good in the world? Do you want to see the forces of darkness begin to be undone and suffering, not, not totally alleviated and, and perfectly fixed, but begin to be restored? I think the text is urging us this way, to pick up our voices and start talking to people about Jesus. Christians conquer by preaching the gospel. The church won't conquer by politics. It won't conquer by cultural influence, but it will conquer by the proclamation of the word of God about the Savior of God, Jesus Christ. So we conquer when we lead Bible studies on campus. Do you know that? When you open the Bible with just a couple of people in your dorm room or in your uh, common area, and you do the best you can to study the passage and try to help people, and you invite a bunch of people But if you're anything like me, not as many come as you want to come. But when you're faithful week in, week out, do you know that that's not just a few people getting together to talk about an old book? That is the kingdom of God, the forces of good in the universe, intervening through you to change lives. That's an amazing thing. We conquer by opening our Bibles in our dorms. We conquer by opening our Bibles with our families 
at the dinner table. We conquer by opening our Bibles and talking to our neighbors and friends about what Jesus Christ has done. Do you realize that your witness to Jesus has epic importance? As we proclaim Jesus Christ, we participate in his cosmic victory. That's a staggering thought. So don't make excuses. Don't be discouraged when it's hard. It will be hard. But persistently witness in a, to a dying world about the great love of Jesus Christ. We conquer through witnessing, but we also conquer through obedience. Obedience gets a bad rap in our culture today, doesn't it? Right? How, how many of you out of this conference are like, I just want to go be obedient, you know? <laughs> nah, I'm okay. Right? Obedience kind of has the reputation of being boring or stuck up or self-righteous. And we don't want to say any of those things. But obedience can kind of feel like, oh, it just generally means having no fun, right? But biblically, that's not what obedience means. Notice how the community of God, the church, is identified in this text. Look at verse 17, second half. They're called those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. He's saying this, Christians conquer as they obey. So obedience is not boring. Obedience, according to Revelation 12, is victorious. When you fight daily against your sin, whatever sin that is, it could be pride and self-righteousness, it could be gossip, it could be cruel words, it could be sexual sin of various kinds. When you actually go to war with that, you're doing something deeply spiritual. You're fighting for good in the world. Your life is a battlefront between Christ and the evil one. It's a battle in which Satan is trying to drag you down back into darkness and evil. And God is at work in you by the power of the Holy Spirit to bring you back to him. Your life is a battlefront between Christ and the evil one. This means that our battle with sin is of epic spiritual importance. Perhaps you're in this room this morning and, and you're not really at war with sin. Even when I talk about the idea of being at war with sin, you recognize in yourself that there's not much of a war. Like it looks more like a half-hearted fight than a war. You're tolerating sin in your, in your life in various ways. Maybe people have even mentioned it to you or, or your conscience has convicted you of it, but you haven't done anything about it. I think my encouragement to you from this text is to shake off your guilt and fear and repent before the God who loves you and died for you, and begin to fight your sin with renewed vigor and passion, knowing that you are part of the redemption that Jesus is bringing to the world. As you take off the darkness in your own life and bring light to your words to your, and to your deeds, you are doing something epic and something really important. So go to war. Perhaps you're in this room and you've been fighting a while. I know a number of you like that. You've been battling with sexual sin or you've been battling with your words or pride or various things and you feel a little bit hopeless in your battle against sin. You feel discouraged and defeated. I want to urge you and encourage you, take courage and keep fighting. God is with you. He will not forsake you. And he is doing an epic thing in your life. So keep fighting. Fight for obedience to Jesus because your soul depends on it. So we fight through obedience. We fight through witnessing to Christ, and finally, we fight through costly sacrifice for Christ. This is perhaps the most challenging verse in the whole text, verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb 
and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. The faithful to Christ loved not their lives even unto death. Wow. The love of Christ had so changed them. They'd been so captivated by Christ and what he had done that it moved them to give up what was most precious to them in their world, their very lives, for the sake of Christ. This is a picture, by the way, of how Jesus always triumphs. Do you know that? In fact, earlier in the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the Lion and the Lamb. Are you familiar with that? Right? It's actually kind of a weird picture because how is he both a lion and actually a sacrificial lamb? How do those two go together? Because they're kind of different. Well, he's a lion because he conquers, right? But he's a sacrificial lamb because he died. Okay, Lincoln, figure it out for me. How do those go together, though? Here's how they go together. As the sacrificial lamb, Jesus conquered. In his sacrifice and death, he was victorious. So, Jesus modeled for us the way to victory. It's often not the way we expect, but victory doesn't come through just merely defeating enemies in Christ, but victory comes actually as we suffer. Christians conquer through suffering for Christ as we follow the model of his life in our own, we, as we take up our cross and follow after him. It's extremely counterintuitive. The world says conquer through display, displays of power, conquer through your might, conquer through your intellect. Christ's example is to conquer through suffering. This means that when persecution or trial or difficulty come, we see it as an opportunity to witness to Christ. See, it's tempting for Christians to complain about suffering, isn't it? For Christians to grow angry and bitter towards those who oppress them. If I'm honest with myself, I've often done that. When people have said unkind things or untrue things about me, I've often been angry or frustrated with them and haven't prayed for them or cared for them. I've complained and whined instead of waiting on God to use my suffering for the good of the gospel. God is using my suffering and yours for the good of his kingdom. Our suffering is the raw material God uses to grow his church. That's an amazing thought. We've seen some amazing things from this text this morning. We've seen the epic arrival of Jesus Christ. We've seen the great victory in heaven and we've seen the ongoing battle for earth in which we are engaged against an enemy, in which we have a shelter, in which we have weapons we are called to take up. We await a great coming day, though, when that victory will finally come, don't we? See, when Satan won't just be thrown down, but when he will be utterly destroyed. I put uh, Revelation 20 in your handout for this reason. There's a day coming when Satan will be finally and totally destroyed. It says this, The devil who has deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever. Satan will forever be defeated and the world will be made right. Christ will reign on earth as he does in heaven. So we will one day put down our weapons. Imagine that, Christians. We'll put down our weapons and the church at war will be the church at peace that no longer has to battle and struggle, but daily rejoices in the joy of God and the great victory of Jesus Christ. Christians hope and long for that day, but do you know that today is not that day? Even now, 
in this very moment, as we just listen to a talk on the Bible, and as we listen to many talks on the Bible at this fall conference, there is epic spiritual things happening. There are forces in the world right now that are trying to distract you from paying attention to the Word of God. And, and there are enemies who don't want this conference to happen. And yet, God is continuing to push forward His great work of redeeming the world. This very moment, you are engaged in the great cosmic struggle of history. See, the forces of Satan are marshaled on the one side, and they come against Christ and his servants on the other. And Christ and his servants faithfully go wave after wave against the evil one. And Satan strikes back again and again and again. And often it feels like for the church of Christ that Satan is winning. They feel defeated and discouraged. They feel overwhelmed. At times they even wonder if they should give up. At times it seems like Christ isn't winning. But Christ and his soldiers march on. This is the great struggle of our time. The battle lines are before you. You will be tempted to compromise, to cower, and to capitulate to the things of this world. Will you stand pure against the corrupting influences of this world? Will you lift your voice when called upon to to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, the light of the world to a world trapped in darkness? Will you hold fast to the confession of your faith, faith, even when difficulty and suffering and persecution comes close to you? The heavenly battle has been won. Jesus Christ has conquered. But the earthly battle rages on. So, will you get in the fight? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to see reality, to see our world from heaven's perspective. Help us, God, to import from your word uh, significance, meaning, and power into our daily lives. Help us to see our battle with sin as part of a great cosmic struggle. Help us to see our suffering as part of a great redeeming work you're doing. And help us to see our witnessing as imbued with cosmic significance as we are a part of the great battle that your servants are fighting all over the globe. Here, across Pennsylvania and across the globe, you are raising up servants of yours who are proclaiming your good news to the nations. And we Christians get to be a part of that. What an amazing, epic that is. Help us, God, to take up these weapons and to take courage, knowing that you have conquered, knowing that no condemnation now stands against us. Help us to go with courage and confidence. God, I pray too for those in this room who would not call themselves a Christian. I pray that they would see reality from heaven's perspective and that they would recognize, Lord, the need for them to switch sides and come to faith in Christ, to turn from the following the the darkness of this world to giving their lives to Christ, the one who has died for them. God, I pray that you would do that by the power of your spirit. God, I thank you for each one here, and I pray you would mobilize, empower, and encourage them to be your witnesses, your warriors to the world. Would you do this for the glory of Jesus Christ? We pray in his name. Amen.